Hi, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. We're popping in here with a very special announcement. For the month of March, we are releasing five new episodes, and we need your help. That's right. If you listen to Filmstrip Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, we need you to leave us a written review for the show. These help the show reach a bigger audience, and that is what we want to do. Expand the reach. Even if you listen on another platform, you can still write a review on Apple Podcasts. So as a gift back to you for this, for every five-star written review we receive, we're opening up the suggestion box to you all. That's right. At the end of your review, leave a comment with a movie you want us to review. Only caveat is it has to be something we haven't already reviewed. For a list, check out the archives. So at the end of March, we'll gather all the suggestions and we'll pull a winner out of the hat and review that movie in one of the coming summer months when we're usually doing our bi-weekly release. We'll do a special bonus show. We know we need the reviews to help expand the show's reach, and we figured since we were asking for this, least we could do is take a suggestion from one of you for our future show. And so once again, leave us a five-star written review on Apple, CastBox, Google, or Stitcher sometime in the month of March. Suggest a movie you want us to review, and at the end of March, we'll pull the suggestions and select a bonus review from you, our fabulous audience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Full Metal Jacket. Starring Matthew Modine, Vincent D'Onofrio, Adam Baldwin, Dorian Harewood, Arliss Howard, Ed O'Ross, and R. Lee Ermey. Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Adapted from The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford. Released in 1987 on a $30 million budget. Grossed $120 million at the box office. So, Kurt, I remember specifically when this came out in 1987 because my dad, who was in the military during the time of Vietnam but didn't serve at Vietnam, thought it was very important that me and my brother understood what Vietnam was like. So he took us to see two movies in the theater, Oliver Stallone's platoon and this movie and i was all of 11 years old when this oh, came out God. and i had never heard some of the things arlie ermy says um in the world at that point and i'm not sure i've ever heard them in any other context except this movie either but this movie certainly made an impression on me and it's something that i've remembered being a part of a swing of movies in the late 1980s where we were quote ready to deal with vietnam Oh yeah, this is this is a movie that's been in the pop culture. It has never left the pop culture since uh, it's come out. Like you constantly hear uh, quotes from it in some way or another. The first time I saw it, much like other Kubrick movies, I knew of it years before I saw it. It was referred to in in sitcoms. Like I remember an episode of Third Rock from the Sun where uh, Sally, being a male soldier trapped in a woman's body, voted to rent Full Metal Jacket as a movie for a girls' night. Uh, and of course, I, I'd see Arlie Ermey in various other movies playing this character in stuff like The Simpsons yeah. and in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, where it's such a weird yep. role. But he's he's great in that, playing the exact same character, exact same clothes and everything. 
And I actually saw the climactic scene of the first act on TV. And even though mm. that spoiled the movie for me, I, it was one of those things where even though it was spoiled, it's like, I still want to see this, whatever the hell this is. And so when I was getting into all the Kubrick movies around, you know, 2007 or 8, picked up Full Metal Jacket. And, uh, I, I seem to recall liking it right away. And it definitely left me shook up when it was over. Yeah, and it's a strange movie, even for a Kubrick movie, because it's just under two hours, and it feels like it's only in two parts, too. Like, there's no third act, or maybe there was never intended to be. It's almost like this wicked, elaborate $30 million stage play that he's having done outside in all these places. And I've always remembered this movie because I always felt like it, it was the movie that didn't have an ending. And honestly, it's, it's best ending was at the middle of it. And then everything that happened afterward, I didn't really remember like all the Vietnam stuff watching it this time. It, Occurred. It could have been the first time I've seen it. I've probably seen this movie half a dozen times through the years. And I remembered so little about what happens and really what I call the second act of this movie. Everything that was impressionable is in that first half when they're all at boot camp on Paris Island. Oh, yeah. That, that's the thing about this movie is uh, when I say it's never left the pop culture and it's always getting quoted, it's everything from the first uh 40 minutes, uh, every, you yeah. know, that, that's where our Lermia is and everything. And that is one of the things people always mention immediately. Like if ever I post on Facebook, I'm watching Full Metal Jacket. It's just like ticking down the clock. When is someone going to mention that, uh, the only thing worthwhile in the movie is the first, uh, first act? And I, which, which, uh, happened every time I, you know, would talk about the movie after I first saw it. And I was always taken aback by that because I'm the guy, I'm, I guess I'm the only guy who might possibly prefer the second half of this movie to the first half. I don't know if you're the only guy, but you're the only guy on this podcast that does. That's for sure. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. That's interesting, though, because I, I've had conversations about this movie for years with people. And I think I've even had one with you online and offline about it. And all I really remember is the stuff from the front. And it's not just Arlie Ermey, though this did mint him as part of popular culture. I mean, at this point, he was a retired Marine looking for work <laughs> and got brought on as, you know, the story is he got brought on as the consultant to try to make the actor sound like the gunnery sergeant. And he finally just did it enough that everybody said, why don't you just let him do it, Stanley? <laughs> and he did a couple takes with him. He was like, okay. And there, there's all that, you know, urban legend, like it's all one continuous take and if you know anything about Kubrick movies that is not the case at all it's like cut in midline sometimes uh, with him so he did a ton of takes but he did that first bit around the the barracks or whatever with him as a test run and he just never stopped talking and Stanley was blown away by this guy that could just you know hurl out not only obscenities but instructions in an authoritarian tone and to hear Ermy tell it he said there's no drill sergeant in the world that talks like that he said, it's just the heightened reality of every drill sergeant that ever existed. Yeah, every time I watch this movie, I'm always curious about that. It's like, where is the line between what a real drill sergeant would do and what Kubrick came up with for, you know, his quote-unquote villain of the movie to do? Because I know that a lot of the – some of the lines – are Ermes himself because like the, mm -hmm. uh, like yeah like you said like he was the consultant and as I understand it he actually went to wardrobe and asked for a drill sergeant uniform so just so we can get, really get into character for the consultant part and Cooper mm -hmm. was watching him and and he was writing he started writing down all this stuff Ermy was saying so like, this is way better than the stuff we came up with um 
Yeah, it was better than the stuff that Hasford had remembered too from being in the Marines. That was that's the thing is to say this is based on anything. It, and Hasford gets you know writing credit of the script here. It was loosely based on the book he wrote about his semi-autobiographical time in the Marine Corps during Vietnam. But even he'll tell you that a lot of what happens here is just stuff that he and Stanley Kubrick dreamed up on the set and to hear the actors tell it, they were you know, like writing this in process. Like there was never a real script. It just sort of pages floated around kind of like the shining, you know, and it yeah. just it, one day he even asked people, how do y'all want to end this? You know? And so it just went on forever. And then they finally just cut it off and sent it to the theater. Yeah. That, that does stand out is that that's a whole thing about this movie is there really isn't a plot the, the 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 first act of the movie does have a beginning, middle, and end, and the mm-hmm. second act is very sort of, uh, you know, it's like I, there are no deleted scenes on the DVD, and this is like Kubrick was famous for deleting and burning everything that didn't make it into the movie. Mm-hmm. So who knows if there is something else he had intended? To hear the actors tell it is it, there's a lot of like scenery shots that never made the movie or whatever, but mm-hmm. there was no dialogue to tell you what any of it was. It was just <laughs> helicopters sweeping over rice fields and you know more of the same. So you know, when they got down to cutting this up and editing it, that this is just what they went with. But yeah, you're right. Kubrick's notorious for well, fine if it's not in there, that this is the director's cut, and he just burns everything else from yeah. existence. But not only Arlie Ermey, like this, you know, Matthew Modine was a thing to get in 1986, 1987. He was on his way up. And you got a lot of other young actors here who, who've worked for years. I mean, I've seen Ed O'Ross and stuff. I've seen Arliss Howard and things. Adam Baldwin, unfortunately, in a lot of things. And most unfortunately now on Twitter. But I mean, you know, he, he's all over. But really, I think the things you remember from this are Arlie Ermey, Matthew Modine, and then Vincent D'Onofrio, who has had such a storied career and has played nothing like this, <laughs> you know, the rest of his career, um, except maybe the cell or something like that. But uh, yeah, he, he is such a neat presence here. And to hear him tell it, like he would not have a film career if it wasn't for Stanley Kubrick, because he took a shot at him when he was nobody and minted him. Oh yeah, he was really nobody, as I understand it. I, I mean, I, th- I think he might have been working as a stage actor, but his day yeah. job was like as a bouncer. So he really like, uh, and it's it is so weird that this is you know, that's I, I bet you that was an issue with Kubrick. Is uh, this is a movie where it's gonna have to you can't get seasoned pros like you know like Jack Nicholson and and uh, or Ryan O'Neill who was seasoned at the time. Uh, like these are all guys who some of them it's their first. Uh, major gig uh, at all especially and like you know Arlie Army you know I don't know if yeah. I, I think he's in one shot of Apocalypse Now but aside from that you know he never had any uh, on camera work really no and then he had another 20 years of it afterward and even had a show on the History Channel of course he's now passed away but I mean he you know he became a thing at the you know the back quarter of his life and I mean we've reviewed him before in seven if people go back and listen to that in the archives we both loved him as the police captain because he's got he's, it's, his dry sense of humor is on display even though he's not randomly cursing people out you know so and at this and I do think it's neat that you mentioned the Frighteners though because I've heard tell and Peter Jackson kind of waffles on it but I heard earlier Ermey basically say he just considered that that was Hartman's ghost, whether they called it that or not. He just thought it was. He's like, well, Hartman kind of lightened up in the afterlife, you know, a little bit. But I I thought that was good. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome if if his name takes that Sergeant Hartman on it. 
Yeah, I mean, who knows? You're right. It's one of those you know, great uh, film Easter eggs you can put together. Well, I I do think you're right, though, that there's a lot that happens in this, but there's not necessarily a plot. But I think we need to give people one anyway, because I don't know how many people have revisited Full Metal Jacket recently or watched the whole thing, at least. So, Kurt, why don't you tell people what the plot of Full Metal Jacket is, and then we'll get into talking about it. Sure thing. We begin with the new Marine Corps recruits, our main characters, arriving at boot camp and are introduced to their brutal drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, whose job is to reshape these young men into killing machines to be deployed into the Vietnam War. We get to know three of these recruits, Private Joker, our narrator, Private Cowboy, and Private Gomer Pyle, who Sergeant Hartman decides to constantly make an example out of for his incompetence and being out of shape. Over the course of this boot camp, the recruits undergo a an extreme physical training routine while being trained in close quarters combat as well as firearms. And Hartman winds up turning the entire boot camp against Private Pyle in an effort to tear him down and rebuild him as a killer, which ends up working wonders as Private Pyle loses his mind entirely and the night of his graduation from boot camp kills Sergeant Hartman and then himself. We then jump to Da Nang, Vietnam in January 1969, where Private Joker is now a combat correspondent, a journalist working for Stars and Stripes magazine, where Joker mainly reports on uh, low-end combat encounters and ceremonies and is enjoying a very safe time in Vietnam until after the famous Tet Offensive, where then after which he is sent into the middle of the country. Joker actually winds up meeting Private Cowboy from boot camp and joins up with the Lost Hog Squad, along with such Marines that go by names such as Animal Mother and 8-Ball. Despite dealing with daily horrors, Private Joker manages to maintain his sense of humor and attitude that he probably had before he joined the Marines. But one fateful day, the Lost Hog Squad encounters a sniper that kills 8-Ball and Private Cowboy. The Lost Hog Squad gets the drop on the sniper, who turns out to be a teenage girl. The Lost Hog Squad demands that Joker kill her personally, as the sniper is actually begging to be shot. Joker delivers the coup de grace, thus ending Joker's pleasant disposition and ending his transition from sensible human being to soulless killer. We end with the Lost Hog Squad and a larger group of soldiers marching through bombed-out Vietnam, singing the tune to the Mickey Mouse March. Yeah, wow. Um, Again, for a movie that really doesn't have a plot, the beginning, middle, and end all happen in the first 40, 45 minutes— a lot of things happen, but I think it's easy to see that everything we're to view here and everything we're to care about here is through the lens of Private Joker. And that's supposed to be the Hesford character. And I find it amazing that outside of Pyle and Hartman, nobody else has a real name in this entire thing. Except like, you know, random lieutenants here and there and stuff that we don't care about. It's it's Joker, Cowboy, Snowball... You know, Pyle, whose real name is Leonard, Cal, you know, Crazy Earl, Doc J, Eight Ball, Animal Mother, what a name. I mean, right? Like, they all go by these sort of call sign nickname things. And, you know, that became like a popular thing after Top Gun, you know, that people were all about that. And, and I almost feel like Kubrick in some ways is sort of taking a slap at that and going like, that all looks cool and fun, but here's what reality and war is like. And, the first scene are these guys sitting in chairs, getting their long hair shaved, you know, completely down while this random country and Western song about going to Vietnam is going on in the background. Huh. And it's like all of their humanity is being stripped away from them. 
That is one of the more striking opening images. Oh, that's the thing about Kubrick. Every movie he does, he opens with something that either takes your breath away or something that makes you think. And this image of them getting, I don't know if that's exactly how every Marine Corps barber shaves the hair, but what is happening is like they're having almost like male pattern baldness shaved in their heads. Uh, <laughs> almost like they're having their youth taken away from them immediately as a, as a, as a sign of how their lives are going to end up in their, you know, Vietnam careers. Yeah, as far as I know from everybody that's been in the Marines and the military, that yeah, they shave you straight down, you know, and they keep it that way throughout boot camp, and then you're allowed to grow it a little bit here and there. And, you know, you see the guys later in Vietnam, they got hair all over the place because it, it got real lax and loose. Nowadays in the military, you got to keep it a certain regulation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, this is what happens to you in boot camp. I mean, my brother joined the Army. This is what his hair got shaved down to. It was just <laughs> stripping it all the way down. And there's actually a practical reason for it. Like, if you go all the way back in history, the military it was just to like make sure lice didn't get in with everybody else <laughs> and, but it also became a thing like you know what everybody looks the same for the most part right they all have you don't have to worry about your hair you don't have to worry about any of that what you're to worry about is all the orders i'm giving you and in in the middle of all of Harton's instructions where he's calling them you know lowest pieces of slime on earth and you know less than maggots and all this kind of stuff is that he's telling them, I am telling you this because I hate all of you equally. I don't care if you're black, you're Jewish, you're Christian, you're this, that, Italian, whatever. I'm cutting you all down to the absolute bare bones of you as a living organism so that I can build you back up to be the thing that I need you to do. And what I need you to do is go and kill for our country. And that is, and the only way to do that is to completely wash you of what you were and turn you into something else. So every, all of them wearing regulation glasses that have to wear glasses now. The rest of them, they, they're all dressed in white t-shirts from white boxers. I mean, it's all about uniformity and no more individuality. And what's the first thing that happens in the middle of this speech? Joker hmm. breaks out a John Wayne impression and gets himself clocked for it. Oh yeah, and yeah, you, you you obviously you, like Hartman does explain what you know, kind of what he's doing, but you obviously put it more delicately than he does. And this is actually a movie where the more I learn about the military, and you watch interviews, and you watch a lot of drill instructor videos, which are very entertaining uh, to me. The more the more yelling, the better. And uh, but when you hear them explain of like, I remember asking my dad watching a clip of Full Metal Jack, I was like, why are they constantly screaming at you all day? And he says, well, they, they want to break you down to nothing so that they can build you up in, into something. Um, mm. And, of course, Kubrick, you know, he takes that a little bit uh, – uh, he takes that to the extreme as he does with everything. Yeah, and I mean, again, you know, my brother was in the army, and he said, "Yeah, guys would use some rough language on you. No, nope, nothing like this." He most of the time, if you listen to, like, if you watch videos of like new navy recruits or something like that, and they're coming in and they're everybody's yelling at them. One reason they're yelling is there's 500 people yelling at the same time, so I got to make sure you hear me, the 12 people in <laughs> front of me. And the other part of it is is to get your attention and to make you realize like you're going to have to respond, and they're constantly giving you information because one thing you learn about being in the military is that you have to deal. with with and process an enormous amount of information and make snap decisions on it just like that. Mm -hmm. Like you can't wait to write it out or write, research a paper about it or any of that kind of stuff. You, if you're in the field and you're in combat, you have to think very quickly. And the only way to learn how to do that is to have people scream at you 23 hours a day to try to get your brain wired for that. And I mean, I remember my brother, they would make them uh, memorize like the sports page and they would ask him like, okay, who got three hits in the bottom of the fifth? <laughs> You know, and I mean, if you didn't know it, you were running or doing pushups or whatever. And so you learned how to know that random bit of nothing and spit it back to them because one, you didn't want to have to run 
on and do the extra pushups. And the other part was because you were training your brain to upload a ton of information at once and then give an answer back as quickly as possible. And so that's the process of what's happening here. What Kubrick has done is framed that and built it like if a horror movie villain could scream at you before he killed you, that's what Arlie Ermey's doing. I mean, really like think of like, it's like he, he brought Jack Torrance back from the hotel and let him be a drill sergeant. Oh yeah. Arlie Ermey. Like I said, you know, you, you know, he's a, he's a non-actor, but he's a, he's a natural actor. Cause I, as mm-hmm. I understand it, he really was a drill sergeant and an excellent commentary for, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, he explains the actual drill sergeant process. Like you can't just, like a drill sergeant, like the training course for drill sergeants, like six weeks of even more extreme training than your typical Marine goes to. Like the most fit guy on a Marine barracks is the drill sergeant mm-hmm. and so forth. So he, so he's the, so he is the real deal. Um, and he, but, and, but he, <laughs> but his constant screaming, it makes for such an oppressive first half, first half, first 45 minutes of this movie. Like, I remember watching this movie for the first time with my brother, and he just turned to me and said, Is this guy going to yell for the whole movie? Cause as a movie audience, <laughs> I can, I can understand if movie audiences, I was, I was, I'm shocked to find out that it was such a hit, 100 million, 120 million dollars, cause, I mean, it really, like, the first half really is just like, guys, it's like, you really do feel that boot camp thing of like, of just being screamed at for, uh, the entire time. Well, there's really two camps on the critics side. Like, people, like, Roger Ebert did not like this movie. He didn't trash it, but he said it was just kind of soulless. And he said, I get what Kubrick's trying to say, but in the process of doing that, he sort of stripped all the humanity out of this movie and there's nothing to really latch onto. And Roger's not wrong about that. Other critics got it for what it was trying to be and they praised the cinematography. And again, the, having a non-actor deliver such a powerful role because Ermy will tell you too, drill sergeants are actors. He said, you have yeah. to be to be in command. He said, everybody in command and management, whatever is acting in some way. And you hear him talk. It's so funny to watch him talk like, out of character because he's such a soft-spoken, like sort of genteel man, you know, but then he could just turn on this monster out of nowhere. And again, like he said it, it, this was everything he had heard other drill sergeants say through the years, just taken to a level of heightened realism. It, I, I liken it, Kurt, to the way professional wrestlers like Stone Cold Steve Austin will tell you like, that's me, but it's just me on 11 instead of like my usual seven. <laughs> and, and I, I kind of like, you know, Ermy's very much like this. And what's funny is I see like through pop culture, how many people have done the Hartman thing in whatever they're doing, right? How many times have you seen this copied over and over and over again? Yeah. It's one of those iconic roles where I can't think of another good example, but basically it's like, Every drill sergeant character or of any kind that has come since 1987 guaranteed the actor just watch Full Metal Jacket as a quick as a quick refresher of how exactly to do. Even even though certain actors have managed to put different spins on it, like I thought Vince Vaughn was really good in Hacksaw Ridge, putting a spin mm-hmm. on it that was a little bit more likable. But I mean, this is the uh, this is definitely the blueprint of the drill sergeant. Although I, I have to, I have to note that I was looking at clips of uh, the movie An Officer and a Gentleman the other day because uh, <laughs> Lou Gossett Jr. he won an Academy Award for playing a, a, a drill sergeant, and I couldn't help but notice it's like that movie came out in 1982, and there are a couple lines in there that show up in a Full Metal ja- in Full Metal Jacket. So I don't know if they're if if, if maybe if if Arlie Ermey's a fan of An Officer and a Gentleman or if those really are just that common uh, you know a line that you hear like steer like the lines like you know steers and queers and so on. 
Oh, yeah. No, I think Ermy ripped that off completely from that because he was, again, he was just pulling from everything he knew. Blue Gossett Jr. and an officer and a gentleman, by the way, much more like what a real DI would be like, except for karate fighting somebody. You wouldn't do that. But (laughs) other than that, that would, that would be exactly what a DI would be like. I mean, he's, he's almost the perfect version of one, uh, that I, from people I know that have done it, they're like, Blue Gossett Jr. is a little more realistic than Arlie Ermy. You know, like he'll get a word in every now and then, but most of the time he's there to try to get you to think and, you know, Lou Gossett Jr. has a different cadence too. Like he would yell at him, but he didn't like go you know, constantly yell at him the way Hartman does. I also looked at part of that is he's in this big empty room. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a military barracks, but it's basically just like a, a, I don't know, a big cafeteria with a bunch of beds in it. It's a big open room. So everything bounces off of itself. Sound wise, it's just a big concrete yeah. building because it's built on the cheap. All right. This military is not spending money on your comfort while you're in boot camp. And so his voice just is just bouncing all over this place. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have that coming at you the whole time. But not only that, when we're meeting our characters, we've got Private Cowboy, who's kind of the short guy from Texas who gets the steers line. And then you've got Private Snowball, who's like, man, you talk about be all you can be, dude. That's who I thought <laughs> of from like Men in Black. He's that dude, <laughs> you know, right? And then you've got Joker, you've got a few other guys, but then you've got big Vince D'Onofrio, who is a, I mean, as he put it, he said, man, I had to eat like the worst food ever to get his out of shape as they wanted me to be because he's a big dude anyway he's like six five six six and like you said he was working as a bouncer at a bar which means he you know as patrick swayze taught us you have to know when to be nice until it's time to not be nice and clearly vince d'onofrio can handle himself so he had to come in as like this big doughy kind of goofy looking dude and that is after years of watching him play really eccentric and interesting characters it's weird to go back and watch him play like this big goofball Oh yeah, D'Onofrio, he, he's one of those actors, he's a, it's a mixed bag. He's done, you know, some, he's done some bad movies, but the, his good performances, like, uh, his performance in, in Men in Black as the bug slash Edgar is so oh, yeah. insanely funny and it's a great uh, performance that, like, that's definitely a performance where no one has or will ever try to copy that because it would be impossible. And he's, you know, he's done stuff like, like in the cell, which is a massively underrated movie. And mm-hmm. he, and he played Orson Welles in, um, in uh, in Ed Wood, even though his voice was dubbed over, and uh, and in this movie, yeah, he was a, he was a bouncer, and he uh, he was told he had to gain weight, and he put on twenty pounds, and he met with Kubrick, and Kubrick says, "Well, now you just look like you could kick everybody's ass." So he had to gain <laughs> an, another, like he had to be, he had to go from being you know like a big tough guy to being you know like sloppy, and he gained yeah. a full eighty pounds, and it it shows like like those some of the scenes where he's having to climb up an obstacle and falling down, he said that's I wasn't acting. Yeah, exactly. Like he couldn't do it, which as strong as he was at the time, yeah, he couldn't pull some of that off. So that's very real. And it's neat to see him. You brought out two great performances there. Ben and Black, he's awesome in that. The Cell, I agree with you, massively underrated. We may have to get around to that one someday because that one's on Netflix and all the time. And I've seen it a couple of times and I have lots of questions. So we can put that one on the shelf for <laughs> a second. But I, I know him most from Law and Order Criminal Intent. He was on that show for over a decade and he is awesome in it. And the way he played that character was like a modern day Sherlock Holmes, like weird, kind of looked at things from the side, did different stuff. And they gave him a real character arc on that show with Catherine Irby. And he's great in that. And I'm for years, he just sort of disappeared in that role. And now you see him pop up and he just does, I don't know, he just does random stuff here and there now. Cause, and he does stage work. 
because that's kind of his real passion and stuff. But the guy, the guy's an actor for sure. And even though these guys are young and maybe not minted, the thing Kubrick found in each of them were people that could be good character actors. Like Arliss Howard's a good character actor. And Matthew Modine is a good character actor too, even though he got cast in leading man roles for years. He's actually a really good character actor. Oh yeah, M- Modine's a, a, a fantastic actor, and it is weird. It's like on the on the on the DVD they talk about, uh, you know, Matthew Modine. It's like you know he wasn't a superstar yet, and it's like mm-hmm. I, I remember watching that going, Matthew Modine was a superstar, because I guess he. <laughs> I mean, I guess if he was in big box office hits, I guess I just uh, I didn't he, see him. But he's been in really good movies, like like mm-hmm. he, a lot of them of late. Like he's in The Dark Knight Rises, he's in Sicario Two, and in a movie. Uh, um, Around the time of Full Metal Jacket, it is another massively underrated movie. It's called uh, Pacific Heights with, uh, yeah. with Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. And he's, yeah. that's an excellent movie. He's great in that, too. I saw that in theaters, actually, Kurt. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, w- I went with, uh, I think, my mother, actually, to see that. So, because uh, she was really into, like, thrillers and stuff. But yeah, I, I remember him in that. And I saw him in stuff like Gross Anatomy when he was trying to do, you know, romantic drama stuff and followed him for years. He's on Stranger Things now, too. Oh, yeah. So I mean, he still pops up and does that. And I remember when he popped up in, in the Nolan flick, because I was like, that's what Christopher Nolan does is find ex stars from the 80s and reintroduces them to the world. Sure. You know, because uh, if if you could get Michael J. Fox in a movie, he probably would. So, <laughs> and who's to say he didn't come out in this new one that he's got in a couple of years? But really, no, you've got all of these cool actors. And the thing is, is we see here is we really see Joker's transformation as kind of this wisecracking guy. That's why they call him Joker, you know, because he makes the John Wayne joke and kind of just sort of goofing around. And he's talking with one guy while they're, you know, mopping the head about like, oh, I wish I had your sister here, you know, better <laughs> than your mother, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And there, he's just being inappropriate to actually. At one point, Hartman just, you know, uh, says something to him and tries to get him to, I don't know, admit something about the Virgin Mary or whatever. And what you get from, from Joker is that they know he's an atheist. And he totally lays out this honest thing to Hartman's like, no matter what I say, it's going to be the wrong thing. So I'm, I'm trying to avoid further punishment. And Hartman's like, I appreciate honesty like that. And he makes him squad leader. Yeah. And he basically tells him, it's your job to make sure Powell, the worst guy in this squad, makes it to graduation. And that's the arc we see is Joker trying to get Leonard to do it right. Yeah, that, that's yeah that that would be his arc in the first movie, and that that and that that thing about this movie is in that first act, D'Onofrio he only had I mean I I should have counted it's got to be under a hundred words he actually says mm-hmm. uh, in the movie like it's almost enti- it's almost entirely uh, you know visual and f- physical performance. Same thing with with Matthew Modine in the first chunk. Like Arliss Howard says you know. Uh, Eight words or so, and yeah, that is a great moment of uh, where he, where Hartman actually, you know, punches him in the, uh, he hits him in the stomach or smacks him in the mm-hmm. face about the Virgin Mary comment, and yeah, he says, uh, it's like Private Joker is silly and ignorant, but he's got guts, and guts is enough, and that's when he makes gives him the promotion there. And this is that's a comment too, I think that Kubrick is trying to say about the military is that I don't need guys to be original in the military, or at least in the Vietnam era military, the military wasn't looking for people with original thought. They were looking for people that would follow orders and that had the guts to, to do things that they weren't really built to do. No one is built to do the things that these men were asked to do and then had to go and do in war. No, no men are, you get made into that by training. You know, and that's just how it is. And you're seeing that in a person where we're supposed to watch everything from his lens, like we've said. 
And we see that, you know, later on when it gets to graduation, you know, he gets assigned to the Signal Corps and Hartman's like, what are you, what? You know, like, why are you doing that? You know, instead of being, you know, a, a trained killer like I, you know, made you to be or whatever. And that's what makes Joker different than the rest of these guys until it doesn't, which, you know, happens throughout the evolution. And I think that's part of what Kubrick is trying to say is that the longer you're in that world, the more you're going to become like what they want you to be in it, because how can you not? There's no way, there's nowhere else to relate to. There's no one else to talk to. Oh yeah. And this character of Joker, I mean, he's a guy who, uh, refuses to change who he is, uh, whether in boot camp and, you know, he's, uh, the, the kind of a key sign of what makes a person human is uh, one of the things is a sense of humor. And, uh, he tries to keep that throughout the entire war. And he's, he, I think he's a guy who, like, if you asked him, even if he's joking, like sometimes he makes a joke about killing people. He really is, he's just messing around. He's just like, he's trying to just keep a sense of humor just to keep himself sane. And, uh, I like to think that that's kind of, you know, his death in the movie is probably by the end of the movie is where, you know, stops making jokes. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what happens at the end of this movie. It's no longer a joke to him because everything is a joke to him, even through the worst of things. And we'll, we'll get to one of those big turning points, but I want to talk about, and a question I had for you. I did not hear a single, like, why, why you are here, why this is going to happen, why you're going to go to war, other than that's what we're doing right now, and you need to be killers. There's not a why to any of this. And I know I'm non-military person, and so military people listen to this are going to lose their minds because I'm asking this. But I wanted to ask you, like, did you ever get a sense that anybody was trying to instill in these guys as the the reason they were doing this? And if not, is that what Kubrick is trying to say about the Vietnam war and why it's so complicated for American history? Because we, we didn't really know why, or nobody could tell you why. Well, uh, I was actually thinking about that last time I saw it is uh, it could have just been a simple line of narration, which I would have liked to have heard why these guys are in the military. And I just assumed like in the sixties, it was the draft and like the, like why, mm -hmm. why isn't, why isn't pile just quitting? And like, screw it, I'm going home. It's like probably in the draft. And, you know, if you get drafted, you, you, you either serve or you go to jail, uh, right. or as, or as his path would have been, you know, he's probably going to end up, you know, going to a mental institution. But like, that's probably why they're all standing there having to take these orders. Cause, uh, cause, cause it's the law, 1968 or whatever. Yeah, there's the, yeah, there, we should mention that's a good thing to point. We haven't had a draft since then in this country. You didn't, I mean, you had to go through extreme lengths to get out of it. And some people did, some famous people did that we talk about all the time now. But yeah, it was hard to get away from that. And then some people just signed up on their own. And I got a sense that there are a couple of these guys that did it on their own, but guys like Joker and Pyle and, you know, some of the others, that's just what they, you know, they got their card in the mail and it was like, well, yeah. I'm not going to Canada and I'm not going to jail. No offense. They're not coming to see you, Kurt. So, nope. you know, they're, they're not, they're not running away. So they're just going to go. Cause I shrugged. That's what you did. Like my dad joined because all of his brothers were in the Navy and that's just kind of what you did in his family to go away. But you know, he, he told me millions of times, like if I had got a draft card, I would have gone. He said, cause that's just what you did back then. You just went. And even in this country today, Kurt, like if you're 18 as a, a male in America, you sign up for a selective service, which means if they ever reinstitute the draft, that's what they start pulling the cards from. 
Is that right? I never, I never. That is that. true. I remember going and doing that when I turned eighteen and thinking. I mean, I had like a medical reason I was never going to be able to be in the military. So I thought this will be funny if we ever you know, get the draft because I'd be like, mm, okay, you got real desperate if you come grab you know me. But okay, huh. so but I, I remember thinking at the time I was like, it's nineteen ninety five. We're still doing that, you know, and we haven't had to you know since thankfully because there's enough people who do volunteer to serve and that's amazing, but. At this time, eh, the ranks were depleted. They had to do something. Oh, yeah. Like, especially, you know, Vietnam, you know, it's an extremely unpopular war. Uh, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing. Apparently, I guess some people probably thought, thought the idea of going to war was attractive. That's one of the better things about uh, the deer hunters. Those are all guys that have the illusion, the same kind of illusion of war of like, you know, like it's Pearl Harbor. It's like we're under attack. Yeah. We got to, you know, sign up like, you know, uh, like a real Captain America type thing. And then they get over there and, you know, and then the deer hunter happens. Right. Exactly. And, and, and these guys, like they're, even when we get to the war front part, there's that little part where they've got like some faux documentary group or whatever that's asking them like, Hey, do you think the Vietnam people want you here? You know, do they, are they accepting your help? And you get like random answers from them. We're yeah. like, I, I don't know. You know, and, <laughs> and the thing is the rank and file soldier doesn't, they're just doing what they're told. You know, and that was the tragedy for so many of the vets that came back. And I mean, like, I know it's a caricature now, but go watch that first John Rambo movie, the, the uh, first blood. Oh, yeah. That's a dark story about a Vietnam vet coming back. And the guy that wrote the book it's based on says he met a guy in an English class. He was teaching like night classes who was a vet who would just kind of talk to him to sort of work through some of his issues. And he said, I used to just, you know, have nightmares like what if this guy loses it one day in the middle of class? And that's what he based John yeah. Rambo. On. And I mean, that's. I mean, that's what where we were in America. It was it was a tough time to deal with that stuff. So I mean, that that movie came out in the early '80s. We weren't ready to talk about it then. Now in the later '80s is when we started to really have the conversation. And I just think it's neat that we don't have any real names except for two people here. You know, Pyle. We know his name's Leonard and Hartman, and we only know his last name. You know, we don't know anything else about him. And everybody else is a nickname. And they even call each other that. They don't even, you know, relate to each other on, hey, Henry. You know, I mean, really? Like that, I don't know. I just find that amazing that there's no other connection between them except just trying to survive this mess. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's, uh, some, uh, maybe partially Kubrick or maybe partially, uh, I always got the sense in boot camp that you're, you're given a schedule basically for like, I don't know how long it is, if it's six weeks or 12 weeks, but you're given a schedule that there's basically zero, uh, free time to, you know, chit chat. Yeah. Uh, so like, uh, the idea is that they never have a chance to catch up aside from that bit where they're, you know, swapping up the latrine. But yeah, the, the fake names, I always saw that as that's Kubrick saying and who they were before doesn't matter. And they're not, you know, they're not going to, whoever they were before, they're not going to be that, uh, you know, by the end of the movie. I'd always, I always be curious to see what pile was like before the army. Like, was he, uh, like, I, I, cause I can't get in my head. Is like, is he a simple minded guy or is he just a, you know, a, a nice guy in, in the most, you know, a visceral situation? I kind of always took him as if Lenny from in mice and men had gotten drafted into the Marine Little Corps. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, I mean, he kind of is. I'm like, maybe he's not that simple or anything, but he's definitely not. I mean, this is guy not going to MIT either. So yeah. he's probably working on the farm or, you know, working at the local factory or something like that, which then there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, at all. I'm just saying like, this is not, this is not, you know, rocket scientists that we ripped out of, 
you know, Virginia Tech or something to send mm-hmm. to the military all of a sudden. And what we find, though, and this is when it starts to get real weird and scary, this movie, because this movie has almost no score except for the times when it wants Vincent D'Onofrio to be Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, they let him, like, you know, he starts shooting the gun, and I love Hartman has that line, like, we finally found something you're good at, pal. You know, because he shoots better than everybody in the platoon, even though he's terrible at everything else. But he gets obsessed with his rifle, and Hartman's giving this whole speech about all these guys that have committed assassinations. And what where did these guys all learn to shoot? The Marine Corps. And it zooms in on D'Onofrio's face, and I swear it's the same Jack Nicholson looking out at the snow and all that stuff, right? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's the Kubrick look 101. And that, that moment, that, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie where, where uh, Hartman's talking about... Who knows who Charles Whitman was? And that's the guy who, you know, killed 12 people. And that, uh, the, the famous guy who killed people from a tower in Texas. But just on a side note, there's a doc, there's a sort of a documentary slash animated movie called Tower that goes into what happened that day, which is a brilliant film. And, but Hartman is using that as an example as we want you to emulate that guy. Like he talks about uh, Lee yeah. Harvey Oswald. It's like he killed. He he killed he killed a man and got off two headshot he got off two shots on a guy one of them was a headshot from two hundred and fifty was it yards or meters away so he says yeah. that's the kind that's what we're looking for you, if you can't shoot like Lee Harvey Oswald you're not a decent marine I know like what a horrible thing to say and again no real marine drill instructor politics or not would ever say something like that like no matter how callous and weird they were like only a complete and total monster would say that. And that's when you realize like, man, this guy is beyond the pale. And he is who Kubrick wants you to think is the villain of this movie. Cause that's the thing is like, it's a war movie. So the opposition is supposed to be the villain, right? Not really. What Kubrick's telling you is the villains here at home, the one that's training these people who says ridiculous stuff like this. And, but you see that look on like the other guys are sort of going like, is he for real? You know, especially like the men of color in the group are like, seriously, is he like being honest about this? And then you've got, you know, Pyle over there just sort of soaking it in. And I'm like, man, this is it. This dude's a totally unhinged. This is going to end badly. And, you know, again, I remember seeing this as a kid and the way it turns out, it's not what you expect at all. And we got to talk about that scene because we've, we've gotten through graduation. We do get piled through. Somehow he makes the infantry. Can you imagine that guy in the infantry? But <laughs> he's he's getting shipped out, all these other guys. And it's one of the last bits of voiceover we get from Joker. And he said, you know, of course, I drew Night's Watch on the last night in the barracks. And he finds Pyle loading up an M4 in the latrine. And it's, I mean, talk about a just a scene that will stick with you once you've seen it, watching D'Onofrio sort of lay out all the statistics and, you know, and that's where they get the line full metal jacket and all this stuff. And he's loading that gun up and then he starts going through his drills with it. And that's what, you know, gets Hartman out of there. Yeah. That scene, I mean, the movie takes a def movie takes a big shift in that moment. And it's, it's such a disturbing thing because, because Pyle didn't necessarily know Joker was about to walk in there. So we're just walking in on a man. Like, can you imagine waking up at like three in the morning? You walk into, into a washroom and there's a guy sitting there with a, with a rifle and he looks at the, the way D'Onofrio, like he's good in the whole movie, but this scene is like an 11 out of 10, the way he looks and he says, hi, Joker. And just like yeah. full psycho, like Nicholson mode. And, uh, it brings to mind something that uh, D'Onofrio said before they made the movie. It's like they were filming the, the boot camp scenes, and it came up on the schedule that the next day 
was going to be that scene. And they were all heading mm. towards their cars at the end of the day. And Kubrick looked at D'Onofrio and said, you know what you're doing tomorrow? He's like, oh, yes, sir. And uh, Kubrick said, just remember, man, Lon Chaney big. It's like, that's what he's going for. We're going for, we're going for Wolfman. We're going for, you know, huge, uh, big acting here. Like, this is, we're, it's going to turn into a horror movie for a little bit. And it does. I mean, it really does. And this is the one time we see Hartman not yelling at people. Cause he comes in there yeah. and, and he's, he's like going, what is going on here? And he's, he's yelling at Joker, like, why is Private Pile not in his bunk? Why are you not beating him over the head? You know, all this kind of stuff. And he says, well, yeah, I've got to let you know he's got a loaded weapon, sir. And I love how he turns the volume down. Ermy does. He's like, now look here, pile. You're going to give me that weapon and you're going to put that on the deck and we're going to get out of here right now. This is not going to go the way you think. And what happens next, man? Again, I will never get it out of my head watching Arlie Ermey get shot in the chest by this guy and Matthew Modine's face just frozen in complete horror because you mentioned it like if he hadn't walked in on him in there, who knows what he was about to do? Yeah. He could have gone through the barracks and executed half that squad before they got him down, right? Because, again, he's the biggest dude in the squad. And then, of course, he sits down on the, the latrine and shoots himself, and it's just a... I mean, a horrible scene. And for me, I've often wondered, how do you ever pick up from that in a movie like this? Like, that seems like such a an ending. And if it's not the ending, it's definitely the, the end of act one of a play where you leave people sitting in their seats with their mouths open. Yeah, like, uh, you know, I've been watching a lot of older movies uh, the last couple of years, I mean, last couple of days, and uh, a lot of them have an intermission after a big scene where you have, like, you know, you get your time to think about what happened or whatever. And I thought if there was ever a moment, even though it's a shorter movie, where you need, like, an intermission to take a break to ponder what just happened it's like it's that because that is such a shocking moment like you know you're you're not ready for that like you think you're just watching a movie but boot camp and then we're going to cut to all these guys in vietnam and everything and no it's you know uh, it's 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 it calls back to that scene where he says you know charles whitman and lee harvey oswald that i love this line those individuals showed what one motivated marine and his rifle can do and before my island, you will be able to do the same thing. And what happens? He, he, you know, if he, if he didn't kill himself there, guaranteed that pile would have been another guy in a tower or he would have done some horrible stuff in Vietnam, but whatever, you know, he, he was broken down, uh, from, you know, innocent young man to a killing machine. And, uh, and then he ends it by killing himself. And yeah, and it's a, and it's a very, it's such a, every time I watch the movie, it is so shocking how he fade to black and instantly, we just kind of resume with the rest of the movie, and yeah, there, there, there is no good way to do that aside from making, you know, making another whole other movie and calling it, you know, Full Metal Jacket Two, and that's you know the stuff in Vietnam. But yeah, it's like that's a tough one. It is, and and the way it comes into that next scene, it's in the daylight, and Joker's sitting there with uh, I think it's Rafterman or another guy, and it looks like they're you know having a drink before going to a meeting, and one of the Vietnamese prostitutes walks up to him and basically propositions them, and I mean it's kind of a they play it off like a big joke, you know, like no, nope, too expensive for us, you know, my mom always <laughs> lets me spend two dollars, sort of, and I'm like just undercut that whole scene with this big joke, and I guess it's it's the only thing you can do to kind of bring your audience out of shock. At that point, because we don't know how far forward we go. His hair's grown back out. You know, he seems to be comfortable enough that he knows his way around. So he didn't just get there last week. We don't know how far ahead this has flashed at this point. And the other thing is it's never referenced again. 
And I'm like, what a what a weird thing, because you think like everything in Act One should eventually pay off in Act Two and then Act Three, right? And it's almost like Act One is this big other movie, and then we're just going to totally ignore it and do another movie, you know? Now, and it's with the same people from that other movie, but nothing that they learned is really going to matter going forward, except you're going to see that Cowboy was a good soldier, hmm. you know, and obviously learned things. And Joker's a better soldier than maybe he wants to give himself credit for. And that there are also people out there that are twice as crazy as e- anybody they met in boot camp at like people like Animal Mother and Eight Ball that are just, you know, running into open fire like that. And they, you know, they get to see the horrors of war real quick. And I don't know, man, it, it's a jarring change. Well, that's uh, one of the things that make that you know, makes this movie stand out is that it is a, it is a relentless uh, movie that that never has a moment that really lets you ponder that. Like any, I think anyone else makes this movie, they would have a scene before Joker ships out where him and Cowboy just have a moment of like, what the hell was that? Like, there's there's no moment where someone says that was pretty crazy, wasn't it? Like the the movie just goes along like 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 an hour and fifty doesn't give you any time to process what you saw until you know the. We fade to black at the very end. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even when he sees Cowboy later, they're just like, hey, you know, they're hugging each other. Like, hey, it's good to see you, man. This is my guy from boot camp. And they say nothing else. You know, like, yeah, you know, that boot camp I told you where that guy shot our drill instructor the last night <laughs> we were there. Like, you think that would be like something you would tell people? Because how could you not? Right. And also the military is a very small place. People would know that story. That It's not like you could have hidden that. Like maybe the outside world wouldn't know that. But. The dudes in the ranks would know that stuff. And that, um, it's so strange. What I'm blown away by here when I see the, the Lust Hog groups or the Lost Hogs, whatever they call themselves, is I'm sitting here watching this and I'm like, I know this movie was made before it, but I can't not watch this and not think like in another life, this was the other Marine group that would have been with like James Cameron's Colonial Marines and Aliens. <laughs> like it's the same kind of dudes. Like the character types just repeat themselves. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, you know, like, like, you know, this isn't the most, uh, authentic, you know, true to life, uh, Marine Corps, uh, I mean, uh, you know, military movie. It's a little bit more of a, not necessarily, it's like, you know, there's no Hollywood, uh, you know, army movie like this, but it is, it is much more of, you know, fabrication, much like, you know, aliens where he wasn't trying to make the real thing. He was trying to make, you know, Cameron's version of what a Marine's like. And that's, you know, same thing with Kubrick. It's like, I don't know if Kubrick, uh, you know, Kubrick's not a military guy, so he doesn't really necessarily know what Marine, what Marines sound like. But in, you know, Kubrick movie, they're going to talk like how Kubrick wants them to talk. Well, that's the other thing, too, is it, Kubrick's not a military guy, but how many military movies have we seen this dude make? You know, Paths of Glory, Spartacus is a military movie. You know, I'm like, this is the third time around for this with him. And well, fourth after Dr. Strangelove. Oh, that's right. I always forget Dr. Strangelove is really a military movie. So, yeah, <laughs> you're right. So it's, it's not like it's not something the guy's not fascinated with, even though he's not, you know, a quote, a military guy. He obviously is fascinated with different aspects of it. Like in Paths of Glory, it's all about leadership and responsibility and morality, right? In the face of, you know, corruption. And in Spartacus, it's about a rebellion, right? And a rebellion for a righteous reason and revenge in a lot of ways. And Dr. Strangelove is about absurdity and bureaucracy, <laughs> right? And this movie is about the guys in the weeds of the Dr. Strangelove military. Cause make no mistake, like that's only a few years before 
any of this would be happening in real time. Like Doctor Strange was made in the 60s. This movie's taking place in the 60s. So these are the guys that have to carry out the goofy orders of the dude sitting in the big room talking to the, you know, smoking weirdo, you know, scientist, right? I mean, that's what is happening. And I mean, you ask people that talk about Vietnam that are Vietnam experts, they'll tell you what, what messed that war up for America was the fact that you had people over here in America trying to run a war that was happening a world away and you wouldn't let the commanders on the ground do what they knew how to do. So it was, it was all very confusing. Oh yeah. Chaos is sort of a theme of, uh, of this movie and a lot of Vietnam movies. I mean, like it's, you know, like, that's that's all over platoon is uh, mm-hmm. like that's another movie where there isn't necessarily a plot and some uh, my, one quote about Vietnam that I'll, I'll just never forget it was in the Ken Burns documentary I've only seen parts of but it just stood out so much where a guy was, was talking about he would be in a battle and he'd look around and he's like I already won a battle here and he's like I, and yeah. then he'd be there again it's like I've never heard in the history of war of having to reclaim the same spot three times like they didn't have to take Omaha Beach three different times so it just like goes it goes against the grain of what you know uh how you win a war and that's kind of the whole thing with vietnam it was such a you know utter disaster where you know where like as crazy as things are in this in this movie i don't find them uh unbelievable oh no not at all and i'll give you another one of the movies in this era of vietnam it was called hamburger hill i don't know if you've ever seen that or not talk about one that just displays the horrors of war for you hamburger hill is named after exactly why you think it would be and it is essentially the ant hill remember the ant hill from passive glory it's guys keep charging up this hill and getting mowed down to try to take it and when they and i just spoiler alert for a 30 something year old movie when they finally take it the dudes that are survived are standing around looking at each other and they don't say a word. The look on their face lets you realize like we did all of that for this. <laughs> and it was nothing like there was no strategic advantage of having it. It didn't show them anything. There wasn't a cache of weapons. They didn't find the lost Ark of the covenant up there. Nope. They just did it because it was what they kept getting told to do. And in this case, I mean, these guys unload an unbelievable amount of firepower into a building that has one sniper in it. And we find out she's up there because the other troops are moving behind them that they're going to have. They're trying to flank them and she is there to distract them. And that is a big metaphor for all about fighting in Vietnam was we have all this superior firepower and we think we're going up against this huge army. And it's one girl in a tower with a rifle who is just distracting us so that we don't pay attention to what's really going on back here. Yeah, it's it's uh, that scene like, you know, obviously jumping ahead to the idea of this being like a teenaged uh, uh, girl uh they don't really, they don't really harp on the fact that how, how young she is, but I always think that's yeah. kind of, that's a Vietnam hallmark. It's like, that's another thing. I was like, that's one where, you know, they got the kids involved. It's like, it was yeah. that insane of a war. Vietnam's a hard thing to wrap our brains around because you would be trying to take objectives and you didn't know why. Like, it was yeah. just because that's what you're supposed to do. Or when bad things would go down, like you get one of your guys killed by a booby trap and your lieutenant's out and you're like, I need some support because I'm getting shot at over here. And like, well, we don't really have a tank in the area. Well, then why am I here on maneuvers? It, I mean, nowadays the military is much more coordinated. They still you know, make mistakes like everybody else, but they don't send squads out without knowing they got air cover for them. They got armor cover for them. They got you know something to be able to back the dudes up because they learned all of this from this. Like you send these guys just walking through the streets and they're going to get picked off and then they're going to get stuck in the middle of a firefight and you have no way to get support to them. 
Because, again, the war is being run by people in Washington and not on the ground. It is the most disorganized war. I mean, one thing about, like, you know, World War II, it's like, like you look at a map and you can see, like, without knowing, you know, anything, you can tell what the objective is. All the, lo- all mm-hmm. the roads point to Berlin. Like, boom, that's it. Whereas Vietnam, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm 31. I'm, st- I've, I've seen so many Vietnam movies and seen documentaries. I'm still not 100% sure what the end result they were looking for was in, in Vietnam. I mean, the political answer is to stop the spread of communism in the area. America thought we'll go support the the Vietnamese that want to be freedom fighters or want to want to be free. And by doing that, we'll show that, hey, you can't just march into people that don't want you here and take over land. You know, so one yeah. imperialist goes against another imperialist. That's really what it's about. And, and what failed was people were like, yeah, I, you know, I'd rather just live and not get shot at every day. And yeah. I don't care who's shooting at me. And that was the problem is you couldn't get the people to like fight for themselves. You know, it's kind of part of the reason we're still involved in wars in the Middle East is trying to get, you know, that military to fight for itself is a whole other problem, you know, and I'm not comparing, you know, the two because it's a totally different thing. But that's what the political answer has always been is that we were sure. trying to stop the spread of communism in this area. It's, you know, Southeast Asia is a big shipping area that threatened Japan. We're friends with Japan. We're trade partners with them. We can't let them get threatened anymore by, you know, chi- Chinese communism or Russian communism or anything else in the area. Cause that could really affect our market and all this kind of, it's all that kind of stuff. It's all about money and markets and all that kind of stuff and power. And it's also America, Trying to say like, no, you, we're have a bigger sword than you. And then we took our big advanced military sword over there and got our teeth handed to us by people that knew how to fight in the streets and also knew how to organize, which is that's the funniest thing. And you talk about the disorganization of war. No better example of that is after the, the leader gets killed and Cowboys got to take over and he's trying to tell the guys, stop shooting. I'm telling you, we need to just wait this out. And Animal Mother and these other guys are like, no, we got our guy down there. We're going to go get him. And they're just disobeying orders. So, like, all that training, a lot of good it did. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, you, you get that in Platoon, too, where it's like very, I mean, in Platoon, that's the whole thing of the movies. These, you know, the yeah. two sides of the same unit going to war with, with, with each other. And, you know, this is a movie where, well, especially in that bit, everyone's a private. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, you know, tough to everyone, everyone's basing, like, Animal Mother is certainly not taking orders. He's basing everything on emotion of, uh, I don't care what anyone tells me. I'm just going to shoot over here until, you know, like, I feel better. You, you ever look at Animal Mother, the Adam Baldwin character, and think, like, if, you know, Private Pyle had been in shape and just a little bit smarter or a little bit more about his wits, that's what he would have become? Because it's kind of played the same way. Like, Baldwin sort of plays it the same way. Oh, big time. I know that's, uh, I think, I don't know if, if that was Baldwin who said that or someone, more, maybe one of the writers, but, but definitely, that is definitely a thing is that Animal Mother is absolutely like, uh, you could, if you really wanted to, you could have just had, you know, could have cut from the boot camp and have D'Onofrio play uh, Animal Mother and not change a line of dialogue. Like, thing about Animal Mother is, I mean, he, he is pretty crazy, even if he's a little bit more of his faculties, but, you know, he, he's, he's a little bit of a nutbag. It's one of my favorite lines as Animal, as uh, Eight Ball comes up, says, you know, despite what you might think, Animal Mother's one of the finest human beings in the world under fire. He just needs someone to throw hand grenades at him the rest of his life. Right. Yeah. He's, he's good in a fight because he is fearless. Like he, you talk about having guts. 
And the dude has total guts. All these guys have guts. They, you know, eight ball gets shot down in the street. The doctor goes after him again against orders. He gets shot. When he points out where the sniper's from, the cowboy, he gets shot. So, or the animal mother. And then everybody runs over there. They huddle up together. And man, you talk about the, like, of all the deaths that are happening and it's just gruesome all around us. When cowboy got shot because he stood up in the window to use the radio phone to try to get some support again. I was like, no, please don't let him get shot in the back. Cause I had forgot what happened to him. And he gets shot. Yeah. And then the way he goes down, he's like, no, 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 I'm tough. I can take it. I can take it. And they're like, yeah, you can take it. You can hack it. And he just dies. I was like, oh man, that's just gut ripping. That's a pretty Kubrickian scene. Cause it's very unsentimental. There's no, like, there's no sad music. No one's crying. It's just, it's just very quiet. And everything. And just on a side note about Arliss Howard, he is a terrific, uh, he's terrific in this movie and in other stuff. You know, he's been in bad movies like The Lost World Jurassic Park, but he's been in great stuff. Like <laughs> I was just watching one of my favorite scenes in Moneyball where he plays the owner of the Boston Red Sox. And yeah. he's so good in that movie. It made me think, did they just get the owner of the Boston Red Sox to play himself? Like he's, he's that good in the movie and he, and he's terrific in yeah. this. And- no, he's great in it. And when he dies, like you can see something in Joker where he's like, no, not my guy. You know, he's got Rafterman with him. He didn't really care about this dude, right? And Rafterman's funny because he's like, man, I want to see some action. And Joker's like, nah, not really. I mean, we did talk about it, but there's that whole scene where they're sitting around the table and they're like, eh, reword that to this and say it was minimal casualties. And I was you just see like, well, we're just spinning the same thing that they're spinning out of their side too. Oh, yeah. Like he says, change sweeps, change search and destroy to sweep and clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a, I mean, right? I mean, with, but again, that's what we do and more. That's what the war correspondents there were doing. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's over there trying to do that. And then at this moment, he's like, no. And when Animal Mother's like, let's go get some payback, you know, and you see it in his face, like, yeah, let's go do it, you know? And so they go into the building, they corner that girl sniper. Um, I love to see where he, his gun jams, his M16 jams, and he drops it and he's, of course, as you would be, she's just unloading the AK-47 near him, and he's trying to pull out his sidearm and can't get it out quick enough. And I'm like, man, Joker's going down. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that that whole scene, that this entire like the, that's the last thirty minutes is essentially this extended, you know, short film about getting pinned down by a sniper. Um, and I like that. Like they they think you know they think they're under attack by an entire squad, and then they find out, and not only is it just one person, and not only is it a woman, but it's you know. It's just just one girl. It's it, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it makes me think of 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 Hartman talking about you know what one motivated marine and a rifle uh, can do. It's like yeah. that's what this girl is. Like you know if if they if they didn't manage to get the drop on him, she probably would have took taken them all out. No, you're exactly right, and I think that line does ring forward again and again. What one motivated soldier with a rifle can do, she's at an elevated position. You know, even when they get close, she's just gunning them down. And what happens is who comes to save the day? Rafterman. You know, and yeah. he shoots her. And of course, he's like, yeah, you know, he's all jazzed up. And of course, Joker's just like, how am I alive right now? Like he's having yeah. a total Pulp Fiction. How did the bullet miss me moment? You know, yeah. standing up there. And what, what I find just harrowing is that all these guys' faces are lit by the fires that are around them because we, we've seen kind of night fall around them as they're pinned down by the sniper and their faces are all lit up by the fire. And the one guy's like, I mean, she's laying on the ground, like, you know, begging for her life, basically. Or I think Joker says she's praying or something like that. She's bleeding out. And this one soldier's like, nah, I'm done. And he's ready to go. And animal mother's like, if you want her dead, do it yourself. 
And I'm like, of all the guys have like wasted an incredible amount of ammunition. And now they're doing, you know, ordinance check. Like, no, we can't waste a bullet on this one. Just let her die. And it's like the cruelty of all of it, right? Like she doesn't deserve to be put out of her misery. Just let her sit there and bleed to death. And they basically put it to Joker. Like if you want her dead, shoot her yourself. Oh, that, that, yeah, that is, that is a brutal, brutal scene. And the girl starts, she literally, I don't know how she picked up this in English, but she starts saying, shoot me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, oh, it's again, yeah, like you said, there's only like three, four moments in the entire movie that have score. And this is one of them. This is a, you know, a really brooding, dark, menacing score. And it really is like it's, and this whole scene is about, like I said, this moment of Joker's been the guy where, you know, he, if we saw scenes in between the scenes, he would be the guy that's like, man, that was weird. It's like, well, mm-hmm. glad that's, you know, that's not me. And this is the scene where, you know, it's like, you know, private pile, he broke in boot camp and uh private joker it took him a little bit longer and this 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 is definitely his uh his breaking point not like he's gonna snap and turn into a psychopath but like this is the moment where you know he's he's he loses his sunny disposition and his uh and his uh what do you call it uniqueness distinctiveness and kind of just becomes you know one of the guys and these are all the guys the kind of guys that are that you know think of the you know shooting a kid in the head as you know that's just their nine to five. Well, I mean, at this point, he's always thought of this again as a joke or that he was kind of somehow above all of this intellectually somehow. Right. Like he was sort of just keeping himself in cognitive distance of this. Even when he's talking with Rafferman, who wants to see action, he's like, nah, I've seen a little bit. You don't want to do that. And whether he had or not, you never know. But you get the sense that Joker's never you know, fired on anybody. He's never shot anybody with well, her flying in the helicopter and the guy's just mowing people down in the rice paddies. <laughs> And they're both just sitting there horrified at like, why? You know, like, and the guy's like, well, why not? You know, and I mean, he lays that horrible joke about, you know, how you, you you shoot women and children, you just lead them less. And it's like, what a wow, you know, and you just, you hear that guy say that and it's played off as a joke, but the look on their face is like, wow, we're never going to become that. And then Joker does at the point where he, he's got to make a choice and he chooses. I think you, you mentioned this earlier, Kurt, it was a great line is that this is where he dies. And I'm like, man, I, I never thought of it like that, but that, I think you're right. I think this is where his soul is, is like gone because he shoots her. Oh, yeah. Like I said, he's been hanging on to his individuality f- from the jump, the kind of person he was before the war. Like he probably, like, you know, the, like the journalism. And I, I don't know how that works. Maybe he signed up for that before he enlisted, but like he knew, he knew that's where he was going to end up. And he's like, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be able to, I'll be able to, you know, keep an even keel. I'll probably write a good book about this when I get back, but you know, I'll, I'll be the guy that has the normal, the safe, normal career in Vietnam and, you know, and I'll go home, you know, safe and sound. And then, you know, the chaos and circumstances of Vietnam. Like, I think, I don't know if Kubrick is saying this or not, but I like, I like the idea that, you know, Joker thinks that he's the one who can't break and in Vietnam, you know, everyone breaks. Yeah. And then the, the final scene of it, of the guy singing the Mickey Mouse Club song and, you know, they're just silhouetted by the fire around them and you hear the planes flying over and the bombs dropping and, you know, they're going off to another fight. And it's like these boys that have been turned into men at this moment have decided we just need to be boys for a little bit. Just just for a minute. Yeah, there's 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 two ways of looking at that, because I've, I've seen people say, you know, that's one <laughs> like seen people look at that ending and just say, what the hell was that? <laughs> but when I first when I first saw the movie, I dug it. And there, but there are two ways to look at that. One of them is that Kubrick is sort of you know he's taken away the real world and he's making this a metaphor for them. You know, kind of 
having to you know devolve back into children in order to process in order to you know uh, process what's happening or they're devolving into children playing cowboys and Indians in Southeast Asia. But I prefer to think of it as, you know, they're all realizing how dark these times are. And one guy just started singing the song and they all watch TV. You know, they know the words and they just start singing along to pass the time. But, uh, no matter how you slice it, it just creates this incredibly surreal, uh, moment of these guys singing a, a, a Disney song and amongst all this, uh, you know, horror, can, I can't help but think of uh, a Clockwork Orange guy singing, singing in yeah. the rain, doing what he's doing. And that's, you know, Kubrick's a fan of that. Yeah, he loves ironic music choices. Oh, yeah. And always has. And, I mean, definitely that won't be the last time we see him do it because we'll, we'll get it next time, too, in his last film. <laughs> and he does it again here. And it leaves us with the ambiguous ending. I mean, it just cuts. That's it. And then you get a little music and, you know, black and white credits and that's it. And I, I mean, I've never not watched this, Kurt, and not gone. And then what? I just feel like I'm left with something here. And so I wanted to ask you this, like in my head, you could tack 25 more minutes, maybe 30 on that front end when they're in boot camp and you got a complete movie or you tack another 25 on the end of this. And we deal with the fallout of it, and you've just got the standard Kubrick long movie. W- which one do you think would work better? Well, it's it is weird. Like I said, I think if anyone else made this movie, you would have thirty minutes on the beginning of the movie, like get to see Private Pile or Lawrence, you know, with his family and them suggesting, you know, maybe you should enlist, like the patriotic slant of it. It's like you know, it's you should you know serve your country and so forth, and have each person's motivation mm-hmm. of of why they're enlisting. That's what's I think that's what other filmmakers would do. And if you tacked it on the end of it, you would have someone, you'd have Joker or some, all the other characters really explain and go over what happened. Like, uh, like in Deer Hunter, they, they, they do that. Like that, that scene at the very end of Deer Hunter where they're sitting around the table singing, <laughs> singing, uh, I can't remember which song it was. God bless America, I guess. It's like a moment like that. But Kubrick says, well, you know, the characters aren't going to be left to think about this. Like that's your job. As the mm-hmm. audience, almost like 2001. It's like, I'm not going to tell you what happened. It's like, you figure it out. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about the connection with 2001, but you're right. It's the same kind of ending. It's what's the space baby? I don't know. What do you think yeah. it is? <laughs> you know, so what'd you think any of that was? So, you know, I mean, really like Kubrick always leaves you asking, uh, at least he does it in a lot of his films, not every film. I mean, some of his films have a definite ending. The killing has an ending. I mean, oh, yeah. it's pretty clear that guy's going to jail, you know, like we <laughs> know, you know, and that, that's, I mean, passive glory. You know what's happening. Those guys are getting sent back to the front lines to die. You know, that, that is what's happening there. Dr. Strange love. Well, we all just got nuked. So <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that goes. And in then Spartacus dies, the Spartacus, you come back to this one and where these guys are probably all marching off to die. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Like the only thing for me, like if I could dream up a you know, third act or whatever, you go to modern times and you see Joker in the 1980s trying to be a yuppie or whatever and deal yeah. with all of this, you know, in some way and some kind of ordinary people sequel or something like that. Hmm. But otherwise I don't, I don't know how you wrap it up. And, and again, to hear the actors tell it, Kubrick didn't know how to end it either. Yeah. He was just like, I don't know. We'll figure it out someday. You know, <laughs> and they, they just came up with this and there's the ending of the movie. Yeah, and yeah, going out on Painted Black, one of, you know, the Rolling Stones, I don't know if it's their trippiest song, whatever you want to call it, but it's a, it's a very, like, as if you don't feel kind of dark and brooding yeah. enough, they hit you with that, and it's like, 
Ugh, you see, like Kubrick's just not going to let you feel good uh, during this movie. No, I mean, yeah, and Paint It Black is a very weird stone. So even for the Stones, like, is a you know they're a blues band, and then they came up with this sitar infused yeah. satanic sounding thing, and it's like, what what is going on with these guys? And it's I mean, it's a trippy tune. You're right, and it's a good one to end it on here. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast, Kurt, where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Full Metal Jacket? Well. Uh, Full Metal Jacket is Kubrick changing directions like he always does in his career. He does sci-fi, historical epic, uh, horror movie, and then he moves on to Vietnam. Now, there's not a whole lot in this movie that reminds me of what I think of when I think of Stanley Kubrick in a way. It's much faster paced. Like I said, it's very relentless. It's much faster paced than his last couple of movies have been. It makes me think it is a damn shame that he did wait so long to make his next movie because the way his style was evolving, making, you know, faster paced movie, it's like, geez, too bad he didn't make a movie, you know, 1990 or, or, or whatever like that. What was that movie? The Aryan Papers was the movie he almost uh, made, but then he didn't. But mm -hmm. I think Full Metal Jacket is a, it's a great war movie. It's not quite as great as certain other Vietnam movies like Platoon or, uh, or Apocalypse Now, which are personal favorite movies of all time for me. But it's definitely a unique take on Vietnam. Uh, very much, it's interesting hearing that Ebert had a problem with this. I thought the whole point of the movie was it's a movie about the dehumanization of young men into killing machines. It's about that process from start to finish. It's like in Apocalypse Now, Martin Sheen's already crazy when we meet him. And in Full Metal Jacket, it's like we get to see how he got that way in a way. And I think it's one of my favorite Kubrick scripts. This was Kubrick's final Oscar nomination. The movie was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, I think it's a pretty funny movie with some great dialogue in that second half. And it's the closest Kubrick ever got to making a movie with naturalistic dialogue that resembles anything the way real people uh, sound like, in my opinion. Uh, fantastic cast led by Matthew Modine as a very uh, relatable everyman in Vietnam. You got Vincent D'Onofrio as a, an extremely relatable type guy who joins the Marines as a normal guy and is slowly but surely driven mad. It's a brilliant acting job. But of course, my favorite performance in the movie is by a guy who wasn't even a professional actor, Arlie Ermey, as the definitive cinematic drill instructor. I don't know how he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this, because it's truly a, you know, one-of-a-kind performance. Like I said, the blueprint that all, mo all boot camp drill instructor roles have followed. Um, and it's even easier to appreciate, like, uh, after when you see, like you said, that Ermie in interviews couldn't possibly seem like a nicer, more easygoing guy. So it's like, oh, this guy, he really is a good actor. And it really is one of the best performances in a Kubrick movie. Like right up there with Peter Sellers in Strange Love or Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. Uh, it's not my favorite Kubrick movie. It'd be like probably right smack in the middle of the film filmography. But I still think it is an exceptional war movie and it's an extra large popcorn for me. You know, I have a complicated relationship with this movie, Kurt, and I've laid that out at the beginning, and I don't think I've changed my mind on it throughout. I always feel like the first part of this, the, the act one, is so good. It's some of the best Kubrick stuff ever, and it's some of the simplest. It's not real elaborate shots. It's nothing more than what you see with good dollies and moving people around. But the way he gets that naturalistic dialogue, like you said, I'm glad you called that out because that's exactly right. It's closer to the way real people would talk if Kubrick understood real people at all. <laughs> you know, like, and, and clearly he does not. So, and never did. So, because he was very extraordinary himself. So, to see that come to fruition and then end on such a punch note. 
there's no way the second half of the movie can't let me down every time. And part of it is, I think I latched into Pyle and maybe Hartman more than I did Joker. And that's nothing against Modine. I think he's great in this movie. It's just, I, I got what that guy was about and I didn't like him, you know, and I don't think you're supposed to like Joker. I think you're supposed to look at him and think this guy thinks he's above all of this and that he can keep this humor to keep this cognitive dissonance from war. And the reality is he cannot, and it will break him at some point. It breaks everybody and it breaks him. And I think the hard part for me in the second half of this is I don't know who I'm supposed to root for, except maybe mm-hmm. Cowboy. And that, for me, makes a hard cinematic experience. Now, is it brilliantly shot? Does it look awesome? Absolutely. Terrence Malick borrows a lot from this for Thin Red Line, in my opinion. And I think oh, yeah. that's a fantastic war movie. Uh, and it's very much more in line with this, actually, than something like Saving Private Ryan or anything like that. But I just don't have any characters I can follow. And that's hard for me to, to really love a movie like that. So for me, like the first half of this is awesome. The second half is a big letdown. And it always is every time I've watched it. And it, and I'll say this too. This is a hard movie to watch. I mean, it's hard to watch this and just not feel really, I don't know. When I got done watching this, like, honestly, man, like I felt like I need to watch some cartoons or something. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what I went and watched when this was over. I went to Netflix and watched the first, the Fast and the Furious movie because <laughs> <laughs> I needed to just go into that land for a little while uh-huh. and not live in this headspace anymore. I do think that makes this movie remarkable, though. So it is worth seeing, but it is a hard watch. It's probably in the middle, maybe the lower middle for me on the Kubrick scales. And when I try to balance it out, I'm like, how do I give this a popcorn rating that really reflects my feelings? And for me, the second half of it is is something I just can't get through enough. And the first half is so good, though, that I'm like, if you just watch half of it and then when Hartman's gone – let it go because there's nothing else you need to know unless you just want to see Joker disintegrate, you know, and I mean, like watching Breaking Bad. And if you stopped after, uh, you know, Walt, uh, you know, won on top of the parking garage, not to completely spoil everything tonight. Right. If you just quit there, you're like, OK, I'm good. You want to watch Walt completely fall apart? Keep watching the rest of that show. I feel like Full Metal Jacket about the same way. I'm going to give this a medium popcorn, but like the very respectable, definitely good medium. But it's the second half that weighs it down for me. So I can't give it harder than that. Though that first part is like extra large, but then the back half of it is teetering from small to medium for me. So that averages down to medium when it comes down to Full Metal Jacket. Oh, yeah. Like you like like I said, it's it's, like, it's almost like it's... <laughs> If you said it was two completely distinct years that they made it, because it's like the first half and the second half are so distinctly different, almost like they could be completely different uh, films. So almost like when you review the movie, you almost have to like, you know, you give you do the first act, review that, then you do the second act, review that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it'd be like if you went back and watched something like Gone with the Wind, which I know is a problematic for a lot of people nowadays, but if you just review that for a movie or whatever, the first half of that is so much more watchable, though the second mm-hmm. half has the best human moments in it. So, right. but it's a lot harder to watch too when everything, you know, goes to hell and back. And I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to come back from something like that. And I'm with you, man. It's, it's amazing to me that Kubrick didn't make another movie for nearly 13 years. After this, it took him that long to get something else back on the screen. And man, we're going to wrap up the Kubrick series next time with eyes wide shut. And Kurt, I've only seen it once. And huh. man, I, I am ready for the loads of answers that you can have to my questions. Cause I, man, I remember things about that movie that I wish I could forget. 
Oh uh, yeah, I'll I'll do my best. That's a it's such a weird thing about Kubrick is he has this, you know, like almost like a Mount Rushmore of movies directing career, and he goes out on a note. I wouldn't say it's a bad note. I mean, we'll get into it, but he does go out. It must be the weirdest note a filmmaker has gone out on because it's clearly a movie that he put some effort into, some work and some thought behind. But I mean, it's it's a movie where you know I, I'd, lo- I'd love to ask him. It's like, why did you make that? His even his wife said, "Please don't make this movie." <laughs> yeah, and and we'll we'll talk about it when we get to it. But I'm looking forward to reviewing that one, wrapping up our Kubrick series, and then after that on the film strip session show, I'm going to get you to come back on, and you and I are going to do like our list of ranking these Kubrick movies all together because I don't want to tag that onto the end of Eyes Wide Shut. Let that sure. review stand on its own. We can look back over all of these we've done over these you know last few years and put them in an order that you you and I both can can give our orders on them and and talk about them and just sort of wrap up Kubrick in a bow because. Man, I could talk about it for years, and clearly we have, Kurt. I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about this guy for years, and so <laughs> um, it'll it's it's kind of sad to know that the Kubrick series is ending, but that's not the end. Of course, there's always more podcasts to be had. Absolutely, yeah. We gotta we gotta find some other director to tack on. Uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah. The director, actor, something. We'll have to find something new to to come up with. So, if you got ideas, folks, throw them at us. Follow us on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod, or find the Filmstrip Podcast page on Facebook, or go over to the Fabish Factor page. Absolutely, yep. Find us on the Fabish Factor uh, group on Facebook, where we get into discussions very much like the ones that we just had during this podcast, where you'll find. Uh, the various letterboxed uh, film reviews that I do, uh, at the time of this uh, recording, I'm in the middle of a challenge where I've been asked to talk about a contrast. I've been doing uh, reviews of various uh, Hollywood musicals. Uh, last night I watched Oliver, and the night before Fiddler on the Roof, and today I had to recap and watch uh, Full Metal Jacket. Now that's that's a, that's a hell of a shift. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our musicals in November that we did when we had uh, The Sound of Music in the Chicago. Because uh, <laughs> you can't get more of a switch from those either, I'll tell you, Kurt. Nope. Uh, that That's fun, though, man. Always kinds of cool stuff happening on. And, of course, folks, follow the, the show. Leave us a positive review if you find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get us. It helps other people find the show. The downloads have just been going up. We're getting more and more audience again, and it's great to be back with everybody. And we appreciate your support. So until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.